That Joe's harp was played for me recently by D. Williams of Killarney, and its music sent my thoughts scurrying back over the many byways and highways of memory. The last time that I can remember hearing the Jews' harp, twas at a scurriacht in a house in my own parish. Every parish had houses like that, small whitewashed thatched cottages tucked away into the laps of mountains, and new self-conscious two-storey monstrosities which guarded potholed roads with uncertain authority. No matter, when day's work was done, and our different isolated communities were made more isolated again by darkness, we strolled towards these houses, each of us making for the night's pastime of his own choice. And there was a choice, as Kevin Danaher recalls. There was singing, there was music, there was dancing, there was games, there was storytelling in any given parish or locality, townland, whatever it was. You wouldn't find all these going on all the time, nor would you find them all going on at the sa in the same house at different times. What you did find was that one house was known where people would gather who were interested in storytelling. Another, where music was another, for card playing and so on. And uh, you took your choice. You had your own circle of friends who were interested in these things, and you went and did them. Of course, it was necessary because there were no outside forms of entertainment and you had to make your own entertainment and people were extremely good at this. This is a very important thing to remember. And I think that it's a peculiar Irish characteristic that they were very, very good at this. In the first place, they were very often brilliant storytellers. In the second place, Irish popular music and dancing were extremely good and they were fostered carefully and people took a great deal of care in trying to do them well. So, your destination might be the old men's collodor in Mary Tom Billy's, or possibly in the safe anonymity of darkness. It might be the comforting shelter of a furze bush for me and the girl who was adventurous and daring enough to risk the censure of the community by coming out for a bit of a court. Another night, it might be the car playing in Daniel Dick's, because car playing was always a popular recreation in Ireland from as early as the 16th century. Well, I think the first reference to cards that I know of in Ireland is uh, here 1556. There is a list of the goods brought into the Ireland by a ship called the Mary of Drogheda, in which includes six dozen packs of playing cards valued at 10 shillings. I think that's the first one, six dozen packs, as an ordinary item of commerce. They were being sold in the country at the time regularly. Indeed, the English man, Edmund Campion, who afterwards became a Jesuit priest and was martyred under Queen Elizabeth, remarked about gamblers in Ireland. What he said was as follows, I'll read it to you. There is amongst them a brotherhood of carows, that is carouch, that profess to play at cards all the year long and make it their only occupation. They play away their clothes, their mantle, and all down to the bare skin. And then they trust themselves about in straw or in leaves and wait for passengers in the highway, invite them to a game upon the green and ask no more but companions to hold them in sport. And when they have gambled away everything, they would bet their hair and their fingernails, which the winner can cut or pull off if they be not redeemed within a certain time. In 
1569, I think, was the date he wrote this. But all this is over 400 years ago. And again, in 1596, the poet Edmund Spencer, talking about gambling in Ireland, said, there's a kind of people that wander up and down to gentlemen's houses, living only upon cards and dice, the which, though they have little or, or nothing of their own, yet they will play for much money, which if they win, they waste most lightly, and if they lose, they play as slenderly. And in 1571, there were laws passed in Limerick that was under Sir John Perrett, who was Lord President of Munster. Putting down theft, banditry, unlawful distilling of whiskey, um, Irish styles of clothing and hairstyles and other villainies, and amongst them a regulation ordering certain vagabonds, including common players at cards, to be deprived of all their goods and put in the stocks until they found security for further behaviour. And again in 1609, in the, in the city of Kilkenny, a law was passed for the town that laid down that no person do play at cards or dice with any free man's son or with any hired servant on pain of six and eightpence fine, and the person in whose house they shall play shall also forfeit six and eightpence. And none of the inhabitants do play at cards or dice or any unlawful game for more than eightpence of the time on pain again of a fine of six and eightpence. So that one finds cards well established in Ireland, well known everywhere indeed, regulations against them. So great was the craze for card playing. Ever since then they have held their popularity very, very much. And interestingly enough it would appear that uh, some of the games which are regularly played in the countryside nowadays. That's the games in which you have a hand of five cards, you know, um, um, auction 15 and 25 and 45 and 41 games like that are of very respectable antiquity too, because an English, another English traveller travelling in Ireland at the end of the 17th century, that's in the last decade after the siege of Limerick, after the war between James and William, there was a man called John Dunton, a bookseller from London, he mentions that the Irish country people greatly love a game which he calls the game of the five cards. And it's very interesting too that the, the Irish names for the cards, for the points, for the various uh, court cards and so on, all appear to be derived from the late medieval French names, not from English. So that, that would seem too to give a, a respectable antiquity to the introduction of cards into the country. On the other hand, if you didn't feel like playing cards, there was always Padneen the Tailors. His daughter Bridie was off for America the following morning, and there was to be an American wake in Padneen's that night in her honour, so you might make for that. In his book, The Bogman, Walter Macken described some of the music that took place at one of these American wakes. The Melodian boy, they shouted then at Cahill and he took it from its resting place on the dresser and leaned there and dragged out its length and caressed the buttons and then let it dance. They hit the concrete with their hobnailed boots and they hurrooed and swung the girls until their feet left the floor and they screamed in the breathlessness of their flying. Cahill was animated. He loved that melodion. It made music for him. He bent lovingly over the squeeze box and looked at it and tapped his heavy boot in time. A lively tune that danced in his head. There was sweat on his forehead. A lively tune, but behind it, like all the Irish tunes, there was that incalculable note of sadness. Lovely.
he ran his fingers up and down with a brand of variations of his own that brought a roar from the men and a shrill scream from the women, like as if somebody had run a finger up and down their funny bones. Ha! That got him. Did you see that now? He finished in a flurry of sweat and a lightning pull and the kitchen collapsed. They clapped and laughed and shouted. Good man, Carl Kinsley. Be gob the boys a marvel, so he is. Here, have a glass of porter, no man. You must be dead. He sank his face in it. And now, says Foxy, Gob Creel will perform for us. They cheered that. Gob drew back. He nearly walked up the walls with shyness, and his face as red as a petticoat. Alice and knowledge, he listened, no getting out of it. They propelled him to the middle of the floor and left him there squirming. He cleared his throat, then flexed his lips and started in on the bog singing from them. It was a great do. The things Cal could do with his fingers on the melodeon. Well, Gob could do those with his lips and mouth and throat. A dance tune gobbed, that's gob singing. A very funny performance. He kept the rhythm going first standing, and then he got down on one elbow and kept it going there. Then he sat on the floor and gave it to them from there. Then he stood on his head and gave it to them between his legs and from every conceivable angle you could twist the body. I tell you, you haven't seen or heard or watched rhythm if you haven't seen or heard a good gob singer. He brought the house down, gob did and they gave him a great hand so that he, he pulled the speck of his cap all the way down until it covered his eyes and his blushing face and then he hid himself away in a corner. Whichever form of entertainment we decided upon, we never really thought of the existence of any other form of recreation other than that which was available within our own protective community. It was, to a large extent, both fulfilling and satisfying. Indeed, in many cases, it also provided a general kind of education. Small children peeped around back bedroom doors or thrust hands through the landing banisters to learn of the important parish issues of the day as discussed by the wise, omnipotent gathering around the fire. They did faith and learned the cut and thrust of card playing. They learned the old legends of Ireland and her songs, although our remembrances here may be slightly coloured by nostalgia as far as the songs are concerned. Kevin Danaher. It is true that where 50 years ago you would very seldom hear um, an, an Irish country ballad being sung. Indeed, in those days they were considered as not being respectable. And I come back to that theme of respectability in a moment. Nowadays, people are quite willing to sing them, and you get good singers singing them on the media of entertainment, and you get uh, other people imitating these or uh, copying them, which is um, spreading again. And mind you, this is a feature which you do not find generally in other parts of the world. You do to some extent in America. You do not usually on the continent of Europe. Be that as it may, the fireside evening gatherings were largely responsible for preserving our songs and music and dances. And many's the youngster that was able to dance a half set in completely accurate confidence by the time he went to school, as in the case of Tom Linehan from Clare. 
Well, there was my father and mother was able to sing, and uh, all the family. I was the only one in the teen. There was ten in the family. I was the only one that wasn't able to play in any musical instrument. All the rest was able to play in a concert and a fiddle. But I, one thing I know that the dance and the music used to be at the house always. And before I ever went to school, I was well able to dance. And I well remember the first day I went to school. I thought when I went into the school that it was into a dance house I was. <laughs> and uh, there was a great commotion about around the new scholar. But the master came up anyway. And he didn't know what was the commotion for. He asked me to know how much was two and two. And of course I didn't know what was two and two. He says, can you dance a set? I said, I will if you play for us. <laughs> Faith, I found out after that he wasn't the musical man that I thought he was. <laughs> Whilst a child in the cradle, my nurse with a ladle was filling my mouth with a notion of pep. When a drop from her bottle slipped into my throttle, I capered and wriggled clean out of her lamp. On the floor I lay sprawling, kicking and bawling, till father and mother was both to the fore. All sobbing and sighing, conceived I was dying, but soon found I only was screeching for more. Then stick to the crater, the best thing in nature for sinking your sorrows and raising your joys. Oh, Lord, how they chuckle if babes in their truckle, they only could suckle with whiskey boys. Through my youthful ingression of years of depression, my childhood impression still clung to my mind. For at school or at college, the bolus of knowledge I never could gulp it with whiskey combined. And as older I'm growing, time's ever bestowing on air and potation of flavor so fine. And I hear them a lecture about your bunny's nectar itself is the only true liquor divine. Then stick to the crater, the best thing in nature for sinking your sorrows and raising your joys. Oh, art is delighting for courting or fighting. They're not so exciting as whiskey, me boys. Tom Lenehan assuring us of the value of the crater there. And just before that, Tom was referring back to the times at the turn of the century when the tradition of house entertainment was still strong and flourishing. And I myself, I'm thinking of the later 30s and the 40s when the system still existed but was being steadily eroded by outside influences. One wonders, in retrospect, how the system of rural house gathering came to be. Dan O'Leary of Killarney. I'll tell you, we'd no other where to go. We went to house dances. We kept together. And we had that kind of interest. Uh, but we heard off the radio, we tried to, to copy it, if you like. <laughs> that's all we... That's as sure as we're there. But what could we do at that time? In, in my days, anyway. <laughs> I never enjoyed, or I never will again, anything better than I heard in the house dance at that time. And Kevin Danaher adds to that. When people were self-sufficient. 
self-sufficient in their way of life, self-sufficient in providing for themselves, self-sufficient in growing their own food, self-sufficient in producing all their necessities of uh, furniture and implements and tools and uh, utensils within their own community, self-sufficient in their entertainment, self-sufficient intellectually, they also tended to be self-reliant and self-respecting. And where they lose self-sufficiency, they tend to be driven into an inferior position as against the outside influences which come towards them. It appears, then, that this method of colloidering, of rambling houses, of house dances, and of house entertainment stemmed largely from the various factors governing rural life at the time. Damien Hannan. It was adjusted to the particular sort of economy that was present in, at that time, which would have been one within the remoter areas of the West, certainly nearly all the West, uh, up to the wartime, which was an economy where very little of what was produced on farms and the smaller farm areas there would have been rooted through the market, very little of what they consumed, well, a small proportion of what they consumed would have been purchased. The economy, therefore, was a subsistence by a large economy. Um, secondly, the technology was very limited. It was basically a horse and man technology. Now, it meant in certain areas that the relations amongst neighbours, for instance, were required, the certain economic exchanges amongst neighbours of labour and machine, machinery, horse machinery and horses, were required actually in the system because that's the only way they could save the crops or, or make the hay by cooperating in labour and machinery exchange and horse exchanges. It meant that any particular farmer who wanted to, you know, save his crops didn't have to have two horses. Um, he didn't have enough ground anyway for them, but that he required two horses for many jobs or he required a single horse if he didn't have one. But he could exchange with his neighbours and they could cooperate with, you, with each other within a very small farm technolo technological situation. Mm -hmm. Now that, I think therefore, you know, if you look at the neighbourhood exchanges, they were related to a particular kind of economic and technological system. Um, that has changed. Now it was attuned to the time. Um, Indeed, in this sense, it would have persisted with the up to the war years because the number of horses increased up to the 1946, I think. And it was only at that stage that tractors started to come in in these areas, or indeed for the whole of Ireland. And if you look at the kinds of relationships people had with each other, the local kinship system, uh, largely you know, within a parish or two-parish boundary right around them, um, marriage would have been highly local. I mean, uh, intermarriage would have been very um, limited within a parish boundary or two parish boundary right around by the uh, extent to which people could meet one another if they were limited to walking and going by horse. By and large, rural communities were self-sufficient, self-reliant, in fact autonomous. The family unit made a community and the community in return governed the family unit. It created the economic, social and moral standards by which its members lived, and it was very quick to censure the errant member who offended against those standards. It brought the offender to heel, and if not, it rejected him. For those who attempted to break this discipline, or who tried to loosen its constricting folds, 
There was always the danger of being ridiculed or satirised poetically in the form of a song by the local ballad maker. Clareman J.C. Welsh once told me of and sang about a lady called Nancy Hogan, who was the owner of a most respected goose. Well, that was the next door neighbour, and, and, and she kept keys too. And you were the goose, yes. <laughs> And the gander, the gander was with the next door neighbour, yes, do you know what I mean? But Nancy Hogan didn't have no gander. And the gander, the gander stole to the goose. And there was law over it. I'm not talking at all, you're here in a few minutes, are you? <laughs> I suppose I have it with, well, I'm 65 years, and I suppose I was six or seven years when my father lost to mercy and lending to me. And, 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 and it, was, it was old in winter. <laughs> and come all you gentle musers, come listen to, I let you hear, it's of a terrible story that happened in this present year. I've been thinking of no harm to Brogan's door. I steer my oar when I met Bill Halpin's gander and he threatened Nancy Hogan's goals. Sure, you all know poor old Nancy. She's got the devil's wear always. She swore by all the high courts that she would get this gander hung. You will not hang my gander for the goals. Herself is more to blame. And she strolls out every morning. By damned, I'm sure she's on for game. Now the peelers came next morning and marched his scandal off to jail and waiting for the assizes. He wouldn't be let out without strong bail. And the gander lay in prison until his trial day came on when Nancy Hogan did appear and against him she swore right and wrong. The jury found him guilty, and the judge said, me, boy, you won't get loose. You'll get seven years' transportation for treading Nancy Hogan's goals. <laughs> when the old gander heard the sentence passed, he looked and the judge right in the face, saying, is it for doing my duty that I should leave my native place? If I didn't do my duty, the story would be ten times worse and the eggs would all be gluggers and I'd have Nancy Hogan's scores. <laughs> and when I'll go home to Brogan's door, I'll feed myself with hearts and grass and I'll threat Nancy Hogan's goes when I'll get Nancy gone to mass. So come all you geese and ganders, turkey cocks and cocks likewise, be sure and shun eat walking, or else you'll meet with a sad surprise. You'll be tried for doing your duty like Alpen Gander when he got loose, when he nearly got transported for Anakin Nancy Hogan's ghost. <laughs> there was one, however, who had broken the mould, and who was nevertheless accepted. He belonged to no community, and yet he was a part of every parish in Ireland. He arrived from nowhere with the regularity of winter gales. His coming was eagerly awaited in the gathering houses and in the music houses, and ball nights were hopefully arranged to coincide with his arrival. He was the travelling man, the far shul, and the night he stayed, they came to the house to listen to him. He told stories of other far-off places and people and events, and if the stories were a wee bit exaggerated, sure, didn't that make the listening all the better? He sang new songs and played new tunes, and many a traditional fiddler and piper owed his expertise to the early tuition he had from the travelling man. 
There was a place at the table for him, and a settled bed by the open fire for the night. And then, like the sudden and brief spring snows, he was gone again in the morning. Dan O'Leary, Killarney. I'll tell you, I was born in 1914, and I, 19, the 5th of November 1914. And I learned my music from a blind fiddler, Tom Billy. I started playing when I was about nine years old. He was called to the house, Friday Dunkley. He was blind. He was still at the house when he came. He wrote so many tunes for him. He, uh, I love, I think, the first tune he wrote, he wrote for me. Uh, it was a polka. <coughs> and then, after a while, he wrote a jig for me. And then he wrote a horn for me. Uh, let me tell you, he was no fun. Uh. <coughs> I remember he wrote Dr. O'Neill's jig for me. And I played it at the dance one night, and he was there. Don't ever play that tune again, he said, because you didn't play it as I wrote it through. That great piper, Willie Clancy, told me shortly before he died earlier this year that when he was young, he received a lot of help and encouragement from a travelling musician and he got his first set of pipes from another. I got the first practice at Bagbillis and Chancer. Mm. I got it from a man who died very recently, Martin Merson Paul Felix Dorn. Felix gave me practice this one night. He was camped out near the, gra the graveyard, Kyle Three, outside Milltown. And that was the happiest man ever came in that road. That night when he went to hell, practice it. <laughs> That's what it was. community protected all from outside influences. There were social, economic and moral standards laid down which ensured an even tenor of life and cooperation in both work and recreation. The system was, in a word, functional. It would have been tremendously functional, I would say, at that stage, yes, definitely. It was a, for, for a person in the system, he, he had a place, a very clearly defined place. He had a security which no other system could give him. I mean, uh, and that from once it changes, you know, that, that identity um, and security of the individual is less rooted, we'll say, in, in, in such concrete groups as would have been the case at that stage. Mm -hmm. However, we all know, at least those of us who were born and reared in rural areas some years ago, know 
that these considerations never once entered our young heads. We accepted the local system and life for what they were. When the fat, lazy days of autumn came about, and the dull, droning tones of the master's voice dulled our already resistant and limited intellects, we didn't consider, or even mentally conceive of, the complex factors governing our lives. We just sat and waited with foot-shuffling impatience for three o'clock, and then we rushed through the door into the yard and stopped. We listened. Was there a pulsating, hungry, exciting note to be heard on the quiet afternoon air? What direction? That's it. Knock an ear. Teddy Joe was thrashing. We rushed home, breathlessly gulped down dinners, and asked for and got permission to attend the thrashing. And then we ran. We jumped ditches, breasted hills and torn bends, sporting dust from bare heels like hares in a frenzy of haste in case the excitement and urgency of the event would finish before we got there. Small fear of that. In his book, Green Rushes, Morris Welsh described the scene that greeted your eyes as you came into the haggard on an old-time thrashing day. As they went through the arch, the purr and zoom grew louder, and turning a corner, they walked into the midst of activity. A long double row of cone-pointed corn stacks stretched across the haggard, and between, Matt Tobin's portable thrashing machine was working full steam. The smooth, flying, eight-foot driving wheel made a sleepy purr, and the black driving belt ran with a sag and sway to the red-painted thrasher. Up there, on the platform, bare-armed men were feeding the drum with unbound corn sheaves, their hands moving in a rhythmic swing. And as the toothed drum bit at the ears, it made a gulping snarl that changed and slowed to a satisfied zoom. The wide conveying belt was carrying the straw up a steep incline to where many men were building a long rick. Other men were perched, forking on the truncated cones of the stacks. Still more men were attending to the corn shoots, and shoulder-bending under the weight of full sacks as they ambled across to the granary. Matt Tobin himself bent at the face of his engine, his black bowler hat on his back hairs, feeding the firebox with divots of black hard peat. In all, there was not less than two score men about the place, for, as was the custom, Redwill's friends and neighbours were choring him at the thrashing, the day in harvest, that is half work, half play, full of wit, devilment and horseplay, with a dance in the evening and a little courting on the side. In the dusk of that evening, as the grain dust began to settle and turf smoke flirtingly reached for a many-hued autumn sky, the assembled gathering, young and old, were fed at long kitchen tables by red-faced, satisfied, laughing women. The kitchen was clear then, the tierce was tapped and the corks were drawn. The men stood around the door and the women sat on stools and forums along the opposite wall. The children sat on the stairs. The music started and the dance began. Another occasion for house dancing and Kayleen was the rural wedding. There was a great similarity between the thrashing and the wedding in some respects. After all, there were both community occasions. During the thrashing, the mehel came together and the greater that farmer's standing within the community, the greater the mehel. On the other hand, the wedding, at first glance, might appear to be a highly personal occasion to the family unit, but that wasn't really so. After all, a match had been made, and the couple were from the parish. It was a coming together of two respected families. The banquet, and it was all of that, was in the house, and again 
The greater the parents' standing within the community, the more guests turned up. Only there weren't really guests. There were neighbours who came to do honour to the two families concerned by joining in the festivities. Canon Sheehan knew this and describes it in his book Glenanar when he says that all concerned had a good time. And they had real downright tumultuous Irish fun and frolic. From north, south, east, west, the friends came, as heedless of the snow that lay caked upon the ground and the drifts that were piled in the ditches and furrows, as a Canadian with his horses and sleds. There was the house far off, the objective of all the country that night, with its small square windows blazing merrily under the fierce fires upon the hearth, and afar off, clearly outlined against the white pall on the ground, were the dark figures of the guests, who had gathered to do honour to a family on which no shadow of a shade of dishonour had ever rested. And they feasted and drank and danced. And late at night, the old people gathered around the fire in the kitchen and told stories, while the youngsters, to the sound of bagpipes and fiddle, danced themselves into a fever in the decorated and festooned barn. Oh man, oh man, those dances. The men cracked the floor with their boots, and they danced half sets and wheels and polkas. They danced the women, and they swung them around, and they screamed and they laughed in pleasure and excitement. The musicians sweated and drank deeply, and the old ones sat by the fire and smoked pipes and tapped feet and thought of other times. That dance lasted till the early brightening hours of morning, and for the young and single, the time was now, and the future was beckoning. The more daring and adventurous couples slipped quietly away to the dark laneways and quiet barns. And that's where the bit of courting that Morris Welsh referred to came in. Dave Cronin of Gwilin, County Kerry, also referred to it when I was speaking to him recently. There'll be a courting, he the old bed, and of course the old bed might get a bit of shaking. That was all there was to it. Uh, I didn't tell you if they were upstairs in the cottage, and a place like that, the bed might get a bit of shaking, you know, if they were courting there. Uh, there might be bits of courting, but that's all that was there. Uh, and of course of late, and in that, the late courting, as you know, was under the bushes. So I said, under the bushes, no, you must have a water car and one pint of girl. I said, oh, which was there, they would have danced away, danced at home, and they wouldn't uh, travel too far. Mm -hmm. And of course, they couldn't travel too far at the day because they had nothing on the hamnail boot mm -hmm. and the old slipper. Mm -hmm. Those bits of courting caused a problem. The clergy were inclined to blame what went on at the dance houses and the Kayleys for the high rate of illegitimacy in Ireland. In this attitude they were rather erroneous. Whilst they were condemning a possible area of abuse and appreciating the effect, if appreciating be the right word, they were failing to recognise the cause. The marriage rate in Ireland had been and was continuing to decline and the results were disastrous. There was a high percentage of single men in the country and a lesser but still high percentage of single women. As a result of this, within the code of standards as laid down by the community, the pressures 
on sexual continency had to be so great as to be virtually intolerable. The young and the single began to rebel. They sought sources and occasions of recreation beyond the local boundaries and away from the censuring eyes of Hob Law. The community was finally failing to deal with outside influences and the beginning of a new lifestyle. Its authority was being questioned and rejected, and consequently the parental discipline of the family unit was being undermined. Damien Hannan. Oh, I think so, yeah, that the old um, age grading system uh, would break down very rapidly in the, in, because, as I say, it was a tremendously, um, and it gave tremendous authority to parents and the old. And it, in a, of a young man or young woman growing up, it deprived them of authority um, for their own lives, running their own lives for a, for a tremendously long period of time. In Ireland, much longer than any other countries, mm -hmm. because it, you must remember that the average age of succession to farms, I think even up to the present time, is about 38. And the average age of marriage is very old, and a large percentage never marry. So there was a tremendously elongated, if you want to put it that way, adolescence yes. uh, in Ireland. And it meant in that this these were almost necessary by the kind of economy. There was no other way we could have it could have operated so so well. It was one way of, of working out the the constraints in the economy that were present. Um, so that, but for a young man or a young woman in that sort of situation, it, it was tremendously constraining, and indeed it would say would have become became more constraining as the nineteenth century proceeded. There was a rejection of authority and a rebellion against isolation. There was, and still is, a seeking after new experiences, new freedoms, and the new pastimes. There began, subconsciously maybe, a search for new standards, and also, according to Kevin Danaher... There's this matter of respectability, which is, you know, respectability is a very serious thing. And respectability, as characterised in Ireland in the late... 19th century, about a hundred years ago, was a very, very corroding thing indeed. When you think that nuns in schools teaching the girls told them that such greetings and salutations as God save all here and God bless the work and things of that kind were vulgar, and that the proper thing to say was, how do you do and good afternoon. But when you find a society which regards the name of God as being no longer respectable, you are faced with a rather serious position and an insidious one. And that did eat away. I remember a time quite well, you wouldn't remember it until you're younger than I am, but I remember a time, say, 40 years ago, when it was considered quite vulgar to sing any one of the popular Irish ballads which are being sung now, and they weren't still sung in polite company. So that you had respectability as one thing. And this respectability bit very, very deep, for instance, into the celebration of the popular festivals. The pattern days, the holy wells, the fairs, all sorts of things like this, which in the old days were the people's holidays, and which were very, very important, which were great social occasions in which people met their friends and came together, as well as times of entertainment, and also, to a certain extent, of trade and commerce and so on, in, you know, the fairs and markets and so forth. Respectability had a great deal to do with the destruction of these things. And very, very often, if you examine 
the pronouncements of the clergy of various religions, but chiefly of the Catholic clergy in Ireland in the 19th century, you will find all too often that the reason for discountenancing or even forbidding the pattern or the gathering at the Holy Well or something of that kind was not a moral one, it was not a religious one, it was a matter of respectability. In other words, they were afraid that the more the, what they regarded as the higher uh, sections of society would regard these things as being uh, unworthy, as being barbaric, as being laughable, as being what you will, but it was, as I say, more respectability than any idea of morality. And again, when you get uh, respectability raised to the level of a moral law, you are facing uh, quite serious consequences. Men and women, boys and girls, left the countryside and sought the towns and cities and the money of emigration. Radio and the television replaced the Colloder and the Rambling House, and the modern dance halls replaced the Kaylee and the Ball Night. The dance halls and the car, two factors which hasten change in recent times, according to Bishop Eamon Casey of Kerry. Why it disappeared was twofold. That the, to, to the reason was twofold. Uh, firstly, the availability of cars, that people were able to go to a much wider circle for their entertainment, for their, for their social gatherings, and secondly, the growth of the kind of big dance hall culture, uh, which through advertising and through stimulation drew people away from their local situation. And I believe that the, the, the pendulum was beginning to swing back again, uh, that, that that had a great glamour about it, you know, going into an unknown place, going to faraway places. This always had a ring, and uh, when the possibility of being able to do it through the coming of the motor car uh, in, 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 in the district in a way in which it hadn't been before came, obviously people responded to it, and so that it wasn't a deliberate decision to stop these things, do you follow me? It was rather something else coming that distracted from it, and as a result, that these, that's how I read it anyway mm -hmm. and I do think that it did leave a very definite void um, in so far as that you know the local uh, community didn't meet as often as it might I believe that the people who are moving into the older age bracket suffered most from it because they lacked then uh, much of the uh, of the pleasant kind of colluder that they used to have and I believe that now that there is a swing back in a slightly different way uh, to what used to be the colluder or the rambling house. Mm. And one wonders what, if anything, did the dance halls provide in replacement for what was lost? Bishop Casey. Very little, would be my opinion. Very little. Um, I, w I, I would feel that uh, it merely satisfied uh, this kind of, of, of excitement, this kind of of adventurous feel that we all have and that we want we want to fulfill uh, the, the, this this the, this challenge that there always is in going to unknown places meeting unknown people but i believe that when the chips were down that that's all right as a passing thing but that one needs a deeper kind of relationship with people than that kind of setting could provide the void that bishop casey mentioned is now with us for some of us our evenings are longer than they used to be in fact, for the old and the isolated, and for those who either refused to or just couldn't accept change, the long evenings must be unending. So I'd say that, that there is a tremendous amount of alienation amongst the old and the poor, um, put them together, the isolated, and there's a tremendous amount, tremendous proportion of households, certainly on the west, along from Kerry up to Donegal, where you have uh, um, old brothers, bachelor brothers, or brother and sister together, or uh, people on their own, 
living together. These are the most serious cases, I think, of isolation. Because these, we say if they're in their 60s, 50s, 60s now, they were brought up in a system which is completely gone. It's, it's decimated. Nothing has grown up to replace it as far as they're concerned. They're left with the residues of the old. It must be highly alienating for them. It must be a situation where they feel tremendously dissatisfied. In recent years, whilst practically on its last legs, the rural community has been trying to compensate for its past inability to function as it used to. Community centres are springing up in rural areas with increasing and hopeful frequency. But when you consider that in rural Ireland today, each household is more isolated now than it would have been at any time in the past, and that the rural community is fragmented by a dozen or more separate organisations, social, political and otherwise, when you consider these factors, you might ask if the modern community centre can take the place of the old system and fill the void. Well, I think it's just one of the factors that will help. Uh, I think there's an awful lot happening in rural areas today that, that, that is filling this void, uh, being stimulated by an awful lot of different kind of organisations. Uh, all the kind of thing that's happening now under Cultus Cultori. I mean, this, this has brought a great colluder back again into... Would you agree on that? In yes, indeed. The, I mean, I've seen it, certainly. Yes. And there are many other organisations. Again, you know, the GAA, all the different organisations in their own way create their own kind of local colluder within which this begins to happen. I believe that the community centre, then, is one of the factors that comes into that situation. And I believe that it ought to be the... The, the centre that provides the kind of facilities that these other organisations who will, through their own traditions, through their own ethos, create the kind of crew that I'm speaking about. But so often they lack the kind of facilities for many many of their social functions. And const consequently, you know, it seems a pity to me that in many a small rural area that when they're having their annual social or whatever it is, that they've got to move out of the district and into a big hotel. You know, when if community centres evolved properly, they could have a much more... Uh, effective and pleasant uh, one within their own. Can I give an example of what I mean, although it's not from a country setting, but it was the same kind of a problem. I remember when I was in St John's in Limerick, every year uh, we would have about 160 workers for the parish, you know, in different ways working for us, and, you know, we would wish to show our appreciation of what, of what was being done, and we would hold, um, they, they used to hold a, a dinner in one of the hotels, you know, until I pointed out that, you know, this wasn't really you know, giving a satisfactory thing to them at all. It was taking them away from the parish. And so I said, we used our own hall. And we brought them in at half past six and gave them a five-course meal. And then at half past eight, 550 parishioners came in at five shillings a head. And not only did it not cost us anything, but we had a great local parish night. Now, it's the same kind of principle. It's in a totally different setting, but it's the, it's the same kind of principle. And uh, I believe that the community centre is the kind of thing that can help this to happen much, much more. And this is one of the roles that it can fulfil. Coltus Gjaltoriaeron are making a great and a worthwhile effort. So are Borgfolte and Condonagelge, and so are several other organisations. But as I revisit my own parish and stand outside the empty walls of houses that once overflowed with singing and music and dancing, I wonder if in fact the wheel will fail to turn completely this time. Those old days are lost forever, maybe. Can they be revived? Damien Hannan. Oh, I wouldn't think so. I would say that it would be very difficult because the whole basis, the whole social basis on which this, in which this was present, has changed, and uh, it's it would be extremely artificial. Um, 
it's possible that in a new form it could emerge, but not. It would have to articulate. It's a different. You have a different situation now. It would have to articulate differently, with the the new sort of social structure that's present in rural areas and the kinds of beliefs and values people have, the relationships people have with each other, and the way they think about each other, and the way the, the, the things they value. Um, it's not saying. Uh, I, I would say that if such a rejuvenation occurs, it will be of a different nature. If, if a rejuvenation of Irish culture, you know, of what you're concerned, it will have to be of a different nature because mm. people are far more mobile now. They're not limited in their relationship to their kin and neighbours. They move far much more widely. Their values are different. Um, the extent to which patterns, the traditional patterns of culture, which would have been attuned to a stable, highly locality-bound, extremely conservative culture, can be replicated or, or uh, in, in a culture which uh, and a society which has completely changed. I think it's extremely unlikely. The, the new system, if, we'll say, a revival of Irish cultural traditions, such as in dancing, music, storytelling, revive, it will have to fit into a different system. Um, it, it has to fit in. If it doesn't, if, it is, if, if you try to, to put it into, if you try to... Um, rejuvenate it in a form that is articulatable only with the old. The old doesn't exist any longer and extremely unlikely to, to exist in the future. So, as we stand at the headland of the past and face the unknown future, we might do worse than to cherish and preserve the most worthwhile of our memories of past days and apply them constructively towards making the long evenings of the future more enjoyable and less isolated. <laughs>